Welcome to the Sunday Message Podcast of Bethany Church in Fresno, California. We hope this message will encourage and equip you as you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. If today's message helps you, share it with a friend. If you would like to know more about the ministry of Bethany Church, please reach out on Facebook or at BethanyChurchFresno.com. And now, here's this week's message. Thank you, Pastor Brian. That was a very kind introduction. Uh, thank you, Bethany Church. It is an enormous blessing for me to be here to share a little bit about what's on our heart, about what we're doing, and also to be able to preach the Word of God this morning. It is always a privilege to be able to do that. So I really, I thank you. It is, it's a gift. Uh, you'll see on the screen a photograph of my family. And so there we are. That's my wife, Roxana. We've been married for almost nine years. My two daughters are Charlotte, who just turned four, and Alice, who just turned two. And I love my family. It's like the greatest thing of life. Um, yes, I love it. And uh, we feel like the Lord has been calling us into something new. It's been the case for us for a while now. In 2014, the Lord called us to Germany. That's actually where our oldest daughter was born in Germany, and we worked from December 2014 to March 2017 in a small church in a small city in north central Germany, proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And the Lord did amazing things, and it was so wonderful. And we moved back in 2017, and I've been on pastoral staff at Mountain View since then, Mountain View Church. And in the last year or so, we've felt a similar sense of calling that God is wanting to lead us into something new. And because I don't completely trust myself and my own motives, we went to our church elders and to other organizations and to our denominations that, what is the Lord saying to you? And so we feel like it is the calling of God for us to, to lead a new congregation somewhere in our city. And we are so excited. We're, we don't have a location yet. We're praying still that God would uh, give us the exact perfect spot, but we're looking somewhere in the northeast part of the city. And we're looking to launch, hopefully, on June 6th. So just as the Allies stormed Normandy, we're going to storm Fresno Clovis with the gospel of Christ. I'm workshopping it. We're working on it. Uh, so hopefully I fine-tune that message by then. But we're really excited about what God is going to do in and through us as we help people become more like Jesus Christ through the transformative power of the gospel. And the gospel does transform us in every way. And that's what we want to look at in the scriptures today. So you've been going through the book of Galatians, and I love the book of Galatians. So we are going to look today at Galatians chapter 2. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn with me, and we're going to read together there from verses 17 to 21. We're going to read the chunk now, and then we'll go through it as we go along. So there it says, But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, 
then there was no need for Christ to die. That's the word of the Lord. And as you've been going through Galatians, you've seen Paul's message here stems from a confrontation that he has with Peter, a, a conflict in Antioch with Peter. Though Peter knew it was okay to be with, to eat with, to associate himself with Gentiles, with non-Jewish people, he received a vision from God in Acts chapter 10 to this very effect. Despite that, he refused to eat with them now because, Paul says in verse 12 of chapter 2, he was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. The people who insisted on the necessity of becoming Jewish before following Christ. And Paul says, that is contrary, that's counter to everything we hold dear. It's outrageous. It's contrary to God's gospel of grace. So today we want to look at this, why this is, what this means for us, how we actually live righteous lives without being beholden to the law. So first, the law. One of the most important questions the early church had to hash out was this one, whether one must become a Jew before becoming a Christian. Is there anything that needs to be added on to our faith? Do we need to follow or abide by other laws before we follow Jesus Christ? What's the purpose of the law? This is one of the main questions the early church went about answering. And in Acts chapter 15, we read the answer of the early church about the Jerusalem council, the leaders of the early church, among them Paul, Peter, James, the brother of Jesus. These are the the big shots of the early church. They get together and they say clearly, no, Gentiles do not need to become Jewish. They do not need to abide by the Torah. They do not need to abide by the law before following Christ. Though the law is good, though God has given it to us out of his grace and chose us as his own, Christ himself has already fulfilled the law. For us, Since Peter said at the council in Acts 15, verse 11, we believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. All of us are saved by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So none of us who are Gentiles, and I'm taking a quick scan of the room, and I think we're all Gentiles here. I don't see any Jewish people. But all of us who are Gentiles, none of us need become Jewish before following Jesus, Jesus Christ. Unfortunately. We read here, Peter did not, seemingly did not remember this important truth. And that's a great reminder for us of how easy it is for us to forget the truths that we know. How easy it is for us to engage in hypocrisy. Something for us to watch out for as well. So this is the context for what we read again in verses 17 and 18. Paul writes, but suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ and then we were found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner. If I rebuild the old system of law, I already tore it down. See, Paul's critics were complaining that his teachings on God's grace in Christ for us, that that undermined righteous living, that believing that God saves us through undeserved grace, through nothing that we, that nothing we contribute is to our salvation, that this teaching undermined doing the right thing and undermined righteous living and undermined following God's commands and that this makes Jesus one who leads us into sin through this kind of idea of grace. This is, these are Paul's critics and Paul says, no, no, that doesn't lead us into sin. What leads us into sin is rebuilding these laws for our justification in order to make ourselves right with God as if keeping the law makes us right with God. He says, that's the sin. Does this make the law bad for Paul? No, the law's 
good. The law is perfect. The law is holy because it comes from our good, holy, and perfect God. It shows us what pleasing actions to God are. It shows us what not so pleasing actions to God are, acts that are destructive. It shows us what new life in Christ would look like. This, you could say, is the purpose of the law, the purpose of the Old Testament law, the Torah, and also the purpose of the commands of Christ that we read in the New Testament. That's the purpose. The purpose is not to justify. The purpose is not to make us right with God. It can't. As Paul writes in verse 19, when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. And the law, though it is good, though it is perfect, though it is holy, it always condemns us because we are not good. We are not perfect. We are not holy. We turn the law in on itself. We may think we live for God when we do good things, go to church, give to the poor, serve other people, are kind to others, support the right causes. And certainly these things are good. They are unambiguously good things. The law is good, but they don't save us. They don't redeem us. They don't make us holy. And that's because our sinful nature corrupts these things, turns them in on ourselves, and it makes it about us and our glory and how great we are rather than how great and glorious and wonderful and good our God is. Quick example. Say something like, Helping someone move, right? So I've moved a fair bit, and I hate it. It's the worst. And so I know, like, for me, someone helping me move, that's a, it's a really good thing. It's unambiguously good. Now, say, you know, for me, like, I go to help someone knowing this, and it's, you know, it's entails a lot. Going to the person's house, bringing stuff out of the house. I drive a pickup truck, so usually it's people hauling stuff in my truck. And then sometimes you get some dings and scratches. You drive over to the person's house, put unload all the stuff, set it all up, and you know, there's a lot that goes into it. So it's really easy in my sinful na- nature to do this good thing and to think, I'm so good. I am just what? How sacrificial of me. You know, how generous I am with my time, with my stuff, with my day. My mom was right. I am a good person, right? It is really easy. I may or may not be speaking from experience. It's really easy to, to slip into this thing and to turn this good thing this unambiguously good thing about myself and my self-love and my self-admiration. And, you know, because I'm a Christian, I can think of myself, oh, no, that's, I shouldn't be doing that. I'm going to, that, those pride, proud thoughts, I'm, I'm kicking those, I'm pushing, t- pushing that down. And then the sinful nature comes right back with how humble you are to push that pride doubt out of the way. <laughs> it's never ending. C.S. Lewis described this phenomenon as like fighting the mythical beast the hydra where you you cut off one neck and outsprouts even more depth under depth he said this was of self-love and self-admiration that's what we do to all good things though the law is perfect is holy is good because this is our sinful nature we make it all about ourselves it's the old temptation from the serpent in the garden that ye shall be as gods it's all about we make the law and all these things that are good about us, about how great we are, about our self-righteousness, rather than about the righteousness and glory and majesty of God. And so the law condemns us. The law can't save us. Following the law can't save us. We need another person to fulfill that for us. We need another person to save us, and that person is Jesus. Verses 19 to 20. Paul writes, For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me, so I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live 
before God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, it's no work of our own that saves us. It's the work of Christ. It's his works that save us. Our works contribute nothing to our salvation, but his works are everything. And what what are his works? What has he done for us? Jesus Christ is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is God, as John writes in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. He is the creator of all things. He is the Word. He is God. And in verse 14 of John 1 says, he became flesh and dwelt among us. Have you ever thought for an extended period of time about how just amazing that is? That the source of life submitted himself to being born? And if you've seen a birth, it's, it's, you know, painful and, and humbling. And you feel helpless, especially as the man. Jesus experienced that for us. He became a human being. He was a helpless child. The word had to learn to speak, learn to walk. The, cre- the creator identified himself, became one with his creation, with the creatures. And then he was abandoned by his closest friends, lonely, alienated from the very people he created. His people he came to and they rejected him. Until he was tortured, crucified, and died. And Friedrich Nietzsche, actually, of all people, the atheist philosopher who abhorred Christianity, saw the truth of this reality. He said that ghastly paradox of God on the cross. That ghastly paradox that God himself, the creator of all things, the king of all kings, the lord of all lords, submitted himself to death at the hands of the very people he created. For us. And for, for Nietzsche, that was a, that made Christianity abhorrent because it, it made values like humility and meekness exalted and it put down the values of strength and vitality and these things that he upheld but see we see the truth in that that god became human he became like us for us so that in coming to us he identified with us he was united with us so that when he rose again from the grave in power and victory over sin and death he brought us up with him he raised us with him to experience the goodness, the holiness, the love, the grace, the peace that has existed for all of eternity in the Godhead. It is ours in Christ. That's what Jesus has done for us. That's the work of Christ for us. He lived the perfect life we ought to have lived. He died the sacrificial death on the cross that we deserved to die. And he rose again in victory and power over sin and death for us. For you and me. That we might be forgiven and freed from the shackles of our sin. That we might be redeemed from the miry pit. That we might have eternal life. Life everlasting with Christ. That's what he does for us. And so that's why Paul ends this section by saying, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. See, if we could truly contribute anything to our salvation, then why would God have to go through all of this? Why would God become human? Why would God be born? Why would he grow up? Why would he suffer? Why would he die? 
it makes his, if we were to think we can do anything to contribute to our salvation, that lessens what Jesus did. It makes it pointless, superfluous, meaningless. No, (laughs) that's not the meaning of Christ. Nothing that we do contributes to our salvation. Martin Luther, the great reformer, called, compared the idea of thinking that we can do anything to earn our salvation to a dog with a piece of meat in his mouth running alongside a stream. And the dog looks into the stream and sees in its reflection the piece of meat and he snatches at it trying to grab it in the process losing the meat and his reflection. Look for salvation through works, reputation, fame, wealth, ancestry, ethnicity, tradition, party, anything except for in Christ and him crucified. And you will lose it just as the dog loses the piece of meat in the stream. See, the meaning of Christ is not in trying to live in accordance with his principles in order to be saved as if the Bible is some self-help manual. You follow these instructions and you will be saved. Follow these instructions and you will live a holy life. Follow these instructions and God will love you. Now, the meaning of Christ's life, death, and resurrection is that it was for us. When we couldn't do it, he came and did it for us and then gave it to us. The old life has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. See, our, live, our lives of sin and shame and guilt from long ago, from today and in the future, they've been crucified with Christ. They've been nailed to the cross right with him. He bears all of it. Right? Every single bad word, every moment of lust, all the greed, selfishness, envy, every single sin we've ever committed, he bore it on himself. He took it. And in exchange for that, as he bears all of our sins, he gives us his righteousness, his holiness, his glory. It is a glorious exchange. He clothes us in his robes of righteousness and majesty. See, the meaning of Christ is that we are no longer defined by our sins because the old life is dead. It's been crucified with Christ and he is alive. So I'm as free from condemnation as if I'd lived the perfect life of Jesus. When God sees me on judgment day, he's not going to see all the sins I've committed. He sees my perfection, my righteousness, my holiness in Christ. See, God loves me, not because of anything I have done to deserve it, but he loves me because of the perfect life that Christ lived, the perfect love that Christ has, and it is now mine in him because of all that he's done for me. It's no longer I who lived, but Christ lives in me. And so let's end by returning to Paul's critics. Does grace undermine righteous living? Does believing that we're saved by the undeserved grace of Jesus Christ undermine doing the right thing? Following God? Living for him? No. No, it doesn't. In fact, trying to save ourselves by our works, trying to be holy on our own, is actually what undermines righteous living. For all of our very good and very moral actions would all really, in actuality, be done for ourselves. For my glory for my righteousness, for my self-love, not for God, not for anybody else. If that's how we approach it, that's the reality. Instead, God's grace is transformative. See, we do right not to get anything from Christ, not to gain anything, but out of gratitude for all that Jesus has done for me, 
out of gratitude for all that Jesus has done for us. See, we are generous. We give. Not to gain anything. Not to gain riches. Not to bolster our reputation. But because Christ, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. So that by his poverty we might become rich. See, we serve. Not to gain anything. Not for people to look up to us. Not so people think I'm holy and good. But because Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, who created all things, came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. We love not to gain love in return, but because Jesus Christ loved us first. The gospel is transformative. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. So how do I live in Christ? How do I live this crucified life that he offers me? Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus, the Son of God who loves you and gave himself for you. So I'd like to invite the worship team to come back up. Probably should have done that a little bit earlier, but I was just going, right? Forgot about it. But let us pray that we may receive this amazing grace from God. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, you are gracious and merciful. We honor and praise you for all that you've done for us. God the Father, thank you for sending Jesus Christ the Son, for loving us so much that you would adopt us as your own son, sons and daughters. Jesus Christ, God the Son, the Word made flesh, we thank you for coming to us, for identifying with us, for becoming one so that as you rose from the grave, we would rise too that we might experience the perfect love that God the Father has for you because we are united with you. That we might experience your perfect peace, your perfect joy. We thank you, God the Spirit, for coming and indwelling us, for living with us, for empowering us, for making us holy, for leading us in every way. God, you are good. You are good. And if you are here today or watching online, and you've never experienced this truth. Maybe you've thought like Nietzsche, like this, this doesn't make any sense. Maybe you've just never given it much thought. But Christ is for you. He loves you. He longs for you to experience this same reality, that your old life, that all the baggage, all the sin, all of the burdens, all of what that which weighs you down can be gone in an instant, in a moment, because it has been crucified with Christ and that you would not live any longer, but Christ would live in you. And I would encourage you this morning to simply pray. Confess your sins to God and ask him to save you. And you know what he promises? He promises to save you. He promises to redeem you. He promises to make you holy. He promises to be with you for all of eternity. He promises to take your sins and replace it with his righteousness. I encourage you to do that. And if you do so, come talk to somebody. Come talk to me. Talk to somebody from Bethany Church. If you're online, call a Christian you know. Give your life to Christ and experience all of his grace, the undeserved grace he offers us in Christ. For the rest of us, this gospel is good news for everyone, whether we've known Jesus all all our lives or never known him. Lord, help us to trust in you who loved us 
and gave yourself for us. Help us to live holy lives, not for ourselves, not to bolster our egos, not to make people love us, not to attain some kind of high reputation. Lord, help us by your grace to live for you. We thank you, Jesus Christ, for your grace. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Know that God loves you more than you can imagine. And for everything Bethany Church, check out BethanyChurchFresno.com.